You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. Hi, I'm your inner dream monologue, and you're fast asleep, so I'll be quick. Great job using the Colgate Optic White Overnight Teeth Whitening Pen before bed. When used as directed, it gives you a visibly whiter smile in just seven days. So while I fly and talk to animals, you're removing teeth stains with ease. Sweet dreams. And when you wake up, keep on living life to the brightest. Colgate Optic White. Find it at all major retailers. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Here we go, Sherry. One, two, three. Let Sherry baby rock your soul. She's gonna help you break the mold. She's super magic, truth be told. Ooh, oh, oh, got lots and lots of musical glow. Hey everyone, welcome to Cause and Effect. It is Elijah Caldwell, he, him, his, aka this is Caldwell here, and I'm sitting here with Mother Sherry and Carla Martinez, y'all. Carla, you want to introduce yourself a little bit? Um, yeah, sure. Good morning. Good morning. Good afternoon. Good evening, wherever you are. Hey, wherever, uh, my, you are. <laughs> wherever you are. My name is Carla Martinez. My pronouns are she, her. Um, I am a proud queer Afro-Latina and I am um, a, a delegate of the Actors' Equity Association, an actor, uh, educator, choreographer, all of the things. Um, so yeah, and I'm happy to be here. I am so happy to be here with you. I am also a proud queer black cis male. And hey. I, you know, I, I say this, I welcome myself into the space and say that these, my ten, me, these opinions are my own and I can only speak from the experience that I am an expert mm. in, as can mm-hmm. you, right? Yeah, um, definitely. I am an educator. I am an, a performer. I am an associate here at Rock the Audition. Mother Sherry is and has been a blessing to me for years and years and years. (laughs) Same. So, you know, we, let's, let's jump into it. Why wait? Let's jump. So Carla, what brought you here? What brought you to New York? How did you get into this whole acting shindig that we all do? How how did it happen? (laughs) Um, Great question. Um, I started acting super young, like everyone else. Um, And there was always, I, I was in a single parent household and there was always someone kind of lifting me to the next thing, whether it was, um, you know, like, a like a studio owner, like putting me on scholarship for something because my mom was just like, I can't do this. She wants to do this. How do we make this work? And there was always someone kind of pushing me forward. And eventually I got to the point where I was like, you know what? I could do this. Like I could do this. And not only could I do this, I love to do this. Um, So then I went to a performing arts high school and then it came time to like figure out what I wanted to do for college. 
Um, and like many people in our community, my parents were just like, look, like we are, we are immigrants. We don't, we don't have money for college. Like that's just not an option for us. So I said to myself, the only school I auditioned for was the Boston Conservatory, right? On a whim, didn't know what I was doing, like had like little prep, no rep. It was trash. And I get there and I remember in my audition, I said, look, I'm going to be honest with you. I was like 18 years old. And I said, my family cannot afford to send me here, but I want to be here so bad. Mm. Cut to, I didn't get accepted. <gasps> and, then, and then that kind of made me think, I was like, okay, maybe this is a sign. Like maybe, you know, if, even if we did have the money, would I want to go to school for something that I, I already know how to do? Like, yeah. Because at the time when I auditioned for Boco, I started doing like some EMC work in South Florida. Um, and I said, maybe this is the sign. Maybe I shouldn't put myself in myself in like hundreds of thousand dollars worth of debt to do something that I'm already doing. Um, and then I took about two years off um, on a whim, got into Berkeley College of Music because I had a friend there who was there for drums. Uh, went in with a musical theater piece. I said, this is my thing. Like I'm open to whatever, but like I sing theater. Um, got in, picked up my life by myself, moved to Boston, did Berkeley, did New England theater for 10 years, and then moved to New York in November of 2019 with my wife. And here we are. <laughs> Yeah, it's all. <laughs> this is I. I love these moments in life just because it's like I feel like this is like so New York, right? Like this is this is my first time meeting you, and like I, these stories, it it is always the hustle for me. It's always the hustle. It's always the uh, like people when you when you move to New York, especially when you make the decision to do it on your own. The need is there, right? It, oh, yeah. Or the want to try is like there. Um, uh myself personally so i i'm sort of the opposite i i'm celebrating my 10 years in new york in august august 21st Yay. everything like happens on like the 21st my birthday's on 21st like it's it's insane but i i also i was a classical pianist in undergrad mm -hmm. my undergrad's mm -hmm. in classical piano and then i literally am too social and could not spend eight hours in a practice room by myself <laughs> um, and then I started singing pop music through my acapella group in college. And that's sort of how, and I was like, how do I make this happen? Also, I always say this because it's a very important. When I was 18, I went to New York twice and I saw Rent and I saw Hairspray. Mm -hmm. So I saw mm -hmm. two shows in which I saw myself represented. Actually, my seaweed was who? Tevin Campbell. So I saw a black yes. queer person doing what I want to do. And I was like, I can do this. Yeah, this is definitely. I could do. I put it on the back burner because I didn't know. And then when I was in college, I went to New York one more time and I saw Fela and literally saw Patty LaBelle screaming her face off and kick her shoes off on stage, <laughs> walking down scaffolding and just started kicking shoes off. And I was like, this is what I need to do. And so I saw her too. I saw her too. <laughs> it was one of the most life changing things. And I was like, okay. Yes. And then finally, when I came back around, like I, I, Went the, went the other route, so I did grad school at NYU, but it was like, I need to do theater. I, I need this. Like, it, mm -hmm. you know, no matter how we get to here, I feel like we always find, figure out that we're like, it, we need to do theater to help us to live. And then, yeah. but then we get into theater. <laughs> Let's move to the next section. And then you realize that people <laughs> do not care for your mental health and you got to figure out how to do it on your own. 
So I was one of two raisins, raisinettes in NYU Steinhardt. And oops, I said the name. Well, it is. It was. That was true. This is the truth. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, I had a many things said to me. I had things said to me like uh, <laughs> that Negro spirituals were not classical rap. And that mm-hmm. when I was supposed to uh, think of doing things like Porgy and Bess, I was told to think about collard greens and fried chicken and like. You know, like I was told to think about those yeah. things. And so I didn't realize until later I had to, I was dealing with those things this past summer. This is nine mm-hmm. years later. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. So it's like, um, so talk, talk to me a little bit about the mental health endeavors and how people can, you know, how, how you found your way to that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so I grew up, uh, mostly having, you know, anxiety, depression, but then um, in my 20s, um, I, because of an incident, I now have PTSD that I, in the beginning, I didn't realize how much it would affect every aspect of my life. Like I only thought that it would be, that it would kind of show itself in relationships because mm. that's where um, those feelings came from. But um, it's really hard having... And I'm using air quotes because like, I don't think of it like this, but it's really hard having an invisible illness in our workplace. And when I say our workplace, I mean, in the theater, like, you know, it feels, it feels really crappy for me to express like, well, I need this, or this, this literally just happened within the past year. Um, uh, like I need a heads up if you're going to, uh, shoot like a toy gun, like the noise of that, like, how do you say to somebody, I need this, like, I need support and not like have to just open up this can of worms about like why this is important to me, why I'm making a fuss out of this, et cetera, et cetera. And like, these are just things that like should be expected. I don't know. Because like, if I were somebody who was visually impaired, I should, I should feel like asking for a large print script is, is something that should just be given, you know? But when you have like one of these invisible illnesses, like I often find myself kind of going back and forth of like, well, what's important enough for me to make a fuss about a fuss air quotes again. And what can I just like work through and get through on my own with my therapist and like make it work for, you know, the remainder of this run. And I think that's the hardest part is just kind of finding the balance. But I mean, that's every part of this business. Like it's almost like you're damned if you do, you're damned if you don't, because there are so many things that we all want to speak up about that we should be speaking up about, but we can't because we have been gaslit to believe that if we speak up about something, we are problematic. You're going to be put on a blacklist. You're No one's going to want to work with you because you ask too many questions or you have too many demands. Um, and I think that's what I've been struggling with both in the workplace and also as a delegate of the union now, being in these predominantly white spaces with this language that wasn't meant for someone like me to understand. And then kind of like going down the rabbit hole being like, well, wait a minute, like, why is this so hard for me to understand? And you know, if I asked for an extra training for the delegates, like, am I being problematic? Like, if I say to them, look, you haven't given us these resources, how can we show up for our membership? Like, 
am I labeled as like the angry brown girl? There's so many things that like come with uh, of of speaking out and 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 asking for support. It it's so I I love how beautifully you put that because I so a little background about me. Both of my parents uh, have their masters in counseling. I grew up with therapists. Okay. Uh-huh. <laughs> I grew up with therapists growing up. I, I had a lot of times had therapists where, you know, I was like, can you just be like, nah, that kid sucks. Like, I, I want you to be the parent that's like, no, you're, you know. But that being said, like, so I've always, mental health and things like that have always been okay. And where I ran into trouble, I also grew up, my parents, I, I, yesterday was my gotcha day, as Sherry knows. And so I was adopted by by two uh, black folks. So my, my family, my house has always been very black as fuck to be, to, to be blatantly said. And mm-hmm. that's where I found issues was when I was just being my black self and it was a problem. And mm-hmm. then also like the question I have that now that like people are looking for people of color. Okay. So you can plop us in these places. And if mm-hmm. you're not used, if you didn't grow up in a predominantly white society, I, I did. I grew up in predominantly white institutions. My The first college I went to was UNC Chapel Hill. The second one I went to was NYU. Okay. Like, I've, uh-huh. I've grown up in predominantly white institutions. But, like, what are you doing to make sure that these institutions are safe now mm-hmm. that you are looking for POCs? So now you're about yeah. to plop us into a place where it also then may not be safe. How do we protect ourselves? And if we say that what we need for how to be comfortable, how to feel safe, will that make us problematic or will we be too demanding? Should we just be happy that we got the job? That right. has been said to us one too many times. Mm-hmm. 100. Yeah. Like we should be grateful for the experience. And it's like, well, wait a minute. <laughs> like I just had to get into an argument with a wardrobe person about how my tights don't match my skin color and they see it as being problematic when I'm out in these lights and my legs look like they're floating in in space, like, you know? And it's like stuff like this that I'm just like, I don't understand like why asking for like a basic need is, is so problematic, you know? And right. it often comes with people of color. Like, and, and of course you've got these, everyone on the crew, especially in places like New England, I mean, everywhere, but right, definitely right. in places like New England, right. your whole crew is white. So uh, to have these conversations and then for people to feel threatened, like you're trying to tell them how to do their job. It's like, it's a whole thing that like the system needs an overhaul and the system needs an overhaul because now people are crying out and saying, this is the way that I was treated and I was traumatized. Like, it's not like I was offended or I'm really sensitive. It's like people are traumatized from these experiences that that shouldn't be happening in any workplace, but especially in ours. We're, we're artists, we're empaths, we're, you know, we feel for each other that in a way that shouldn't be, you know, labeling people as problematic for expressing what they need and expressing for what is right and fair, you know, advocating for that. I, yeah, it's, it, I, there's so many specific instances that I'm thinking about just from my own experience. So I'm, I'm from the South and, and I, and this surprised a lot of people. I've never uh, actually done a show in the South. Mm-hmm. I've never actually done theater in the South but I can't imagine what it would be like to like, what, what if I was like a tap dancing person? Like I, I can't tap, but like if I was one of those things and I had to go do white Christmas in mm-hmm. somewhere in the South, 
Do you know what that experience would look like? It would be scary. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) You know, like... It would be terrifying. Because we would literally... And this is what... And I talk about this with Sherry all the time in terms of, you know, the new uh, programs that we're talking about in terms of pop rock, in terms of musical theater. You have to look at the culture, right? Mm -hmm. My culture is going to look different than Sherry's culture. is going to look different than your culture. So, like, if I'm doing some show set in the 50s, we need to look at my hair. We need to look at my clothing. We need to look at where where was I from? Because that's going to be very different than where... Carlos from and where Sherry's from like that's my and and that's my issue with a lot of shows when you and I'm not going to call them out by name but like when you just plug in people of color and you don't change the narrative or talk about the narrative of this is not how my black self would talk to my mother this is not how I would get away with something set in a predominantly white institution Right, right, right. The yep, show does 100. not make sense. You can't just plug us in, therefore creating more trauma to people that are watching. It's being like, well, this doesn't. This is not how this would go. Right. Yeah. One hundred. It's like the last right right before the pandemic, I did a year's worth of Little Shop of Horrors. I did two productions back to back, and both productions there was just a piece. One so definitely more than the other, but there was a piece that was missing in regards to uh, the three urchins of like, there's a whole nother level of storytelling that needs to happen that is not happening because the whole creative team is white. <laughs> like, we need to talk about these girls. We need to talk about their relationship to the rest of the white people on stage. And not only on stage, them as characters and what it means for them, you know, whether you're having them be storytellers or whether or whether you're having them be the little bits, the little doo-wop girls in the back, there's still a presence and we need to talk about that and we need to develop this and the work is not there. And that's, you know, that's across the board with shows like Little Shop of Horrors. Like the work is not being done and it's like, well, they sing great. Like why do we need to develop their characters and develop them into the story when they're wailing their brains out? And it's like, no, 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 no. This is a disservice to the people, the, probably the three people of color that are on that stage, you know? It, it, what, literally, it, they are, once again, as we have seen with most of this movement, the people of color that are women, literally the only ones speaking truth in this entire story, and Hello? then have to do so on high cues. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and the only other person that does it is literally Audrey. And but he's the villain and killing everybody. But then I'm also like, well, I don't really like the rest of these white people on the stage. So like, (laughs) go ahead, girl, eat them. (laughs) I'm okay with it. (laughs) Yeah, you know, just just do it. Like, let's get to the finale. Please eat. Please eat all of them. But like it, you. Well, and this is and this ties right back into like rock. Like this is why we have to talk about. What is doo-wop and why is Little Shop of Horrors a doo-wop musical? And like, I will, I will always scream this from the rooftops. Uh, uh, Sherry knows this. Oklahoma should have been the first POC musical because sure, sure, Shirley's because of the historical aspect and who was in Oklahoma, Indian territory. Right. 
Where were they at? Yep. Who was there? Mm-hmm. Everyone was there. It was in the 1800s. Freed slaves. Mexican-American War. Transcontinental Railroad. You know who built that? The Chinese people. You like, everyone was literally in Oklahoma. We were not out here singing like we're singing at the Met. We need to discuss <laughs> these things. <laughs> Carousel yes. literally is in a fish shanty town. Nettie, for me, Nettie's cooking food for everybody. I want Nettie to be big as a house and hollering. Yes. Okay. Yes. That's what yes. I want. That's what I yes. want. If she's in the kitchen. Hello. June is yes. busting out all over. Nettie knows what June busting means. <laughs> yes. Yes. 100. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so we're having a fun. We're having a kiki. Carla, I'm, I must ask you, what does a safe theater space look like to you? Okay. Um, What does a safe theater space look like for me? I wrote some bullet points down because if not, then I'll sit here for three hours talking to you about this. Um, So let me give you just a quick backstory of how I came up with this list and where the fact is that I got it from. So during the Actors' Equity Convention a couple weeks ago, I asked a question, there was like an open forum, and I said, you know, with this new DEI retrofit that they've published, Mm -hmm. um, what happens if you have a theater company or a producer that does not want to abide by the retrofit? What happens if if someone comes up to you and says, you know what, we're actually not going to do this because we'll sell tickets anyways, like even if we don't have people of color. Mm-hmm. So like for us, it's not a priority. We get that it is for Actors' Equity, but it's not for us because they are not, you know, in, in direct. I mean, they have a negotiating partnership with AEA, but they can do whatever they want. Clearly. Um, And this comes from the Avita situation at North Shore Music Theater a couple of years ago. Um, My question didn't get answered, but then I had a meeting with Mary McCall, just me and her. And I asked her again, what happens if you have a company that says, nope, we're not doing this? And long story short, because uh, casting, because AEA only directly deals with producers and um, uh, business managers and not casting, they can get away with not hiring people of color by saying that it's an artistic choice. Oh my God. And so basically I said, so there's nothing that AEA can do if North Shore Music Theater doesn't hire 50% BIPOC folks in their upcoming season. And she flat out told me, no, there's nothing that we can do because they can call it an artistic choice. And because we don't deal with creatives or artistic directors, they can get away with it. So, what does a safe space look like to me? Number one. <laughs> oh, okay. okay, hold on, hold on. Okay, Carla, Before you go wait, into these questions, you wait, like, yeah, wait, wait, we wait. have to unpack this without wait. anybody going into any kind of receipts, but that was a receipt, girl! Yes. I mean, and she, and I, you know, she was very, like, she was very open about it. Oh she was God. very, you know, she... I, she, I was yeah. dead. Did she have it? Did she have any emotion about it, or she just kept it boardroom? Sorry, I don't think it matters if she had emotion about it. She literally said it doesn't matter. I mean, well, she, I guess what I'm saying is, was there any room at all after this that we no? There, I mean, she, she felt she 
I could see the frustration because it does sound like this has happened before where they have gone back because remember they, uh, they um, introduced a, a, a self-identify thing in the portal and what they were going to do with those numbers, because she says that the numbers are so specific, she can narrow it down to how many uh, uh, women were hired in a show, in a season, how many um, non-binary folks, like they have the numbers so tight that they could literally just go back to any theater and say, look, these are the numbers from your previous season. Like you said you were going to do this. You put up a black square after George Floyd was murdered and said that you were going to, make this huge institutional change, but but you're not doing that. And so it sounded like this has been something that they have been going back and forth on for a really long time. Uh-huh. Um, in, in the Avita situation, she said that she spoke to, you know, some, some leadership at North Shore and they were basically, for a lack of a better word, told her to like, go kick rocks. Like, yeah, yeah, they told her to buzz off because for them, like, and you... Like, especially in New England, where there are so few theaters, especially Lord theaters, like North Shore is one out of like maybe like four or five in the whole area. Like, and this is like panning a bunch of states, you know, their their audience does not care. They do not care about seeing people authentically represented on stage. And so there was emotion in her, but it was more of like exhaustion because it, it sounded like this is something that they have been dealing with that there is no way out unless unless it is written into the contract whatever the wording is because right now it's a permissible bargaining point as opposed to a mandatory bargaining point a mandatory bargaining point is like wages health insurance pension those are mandatory but anything regarding like you need to hire 25% BIPOC per season. That would fall under permissive, which means that they are not required to address it. Like they are not required to to implement that because it's a permissive bargaining point and not a mandatory one. So what we need to do is rewrite these contracts, get all of the white people, the old white people off of the committees for the contracts and start getting brown people in there to negotiate their own language so that we have accountability, which ties back to what do I think is safe? Accountability with producers and companies. One, that number one, full stop. There needs to be accountability because right now it's a free for all. It truly is a free for all. I, I Can I also add in it from me looking outwardly in, not saying that it's that I I don't experience these things as well, but it feel, it feels like in these kind of de- like demands that are just human and some and being humane, that it truly is like brown people shows. It is yeah. always West Side Story, and it is always a Vita in which they are not casting appropriately. And I feel like for a certain extent, it needs to fall on the creators. Sir Andrew Lloyd Webber and Stephen Sondheim say something because Stephen Sondheim has absolutely said, "I don't care who plays Maria as long as she's, as long as right. she is talented." He said that. Mm-hmm. He said that very yeah. recently. Andrew Lloyd Webber hasn't said really anything, but like, baby, it's about Argentina. So the folks are brown, whether they are from I- I- Italy or not. It's South America. Right. Am I crazy? Am I crazy? No. Do no. I? And like. What? 
Someone slid into my DMs actually because I went on this whole rant on my Instagram about it, and someone you know brought up um, the argument that Ava Perone had like blonde hair and blue eyes, and I'm like, by saying that Argentinian people are more white and European, which there is a a, a large portion that are, sure. you are completely erasing a group of indigenous people that were in Argentina, and it's about the culture and not the color. The culture of these people is rooted in indigenous Latinx, et cetera, et cetera. And sure, we can have the whole conversation about white passing, whatever, sure. but for everybody to cast a veto with all white people, all white people, it's always all white is wrong, yep. is wrong. Yep. And you are, and by not even letting people of color in the door, which is what happened at North Shore, you are essentially erasing history of indigenous people to the land and like that's and so i politely tried to tell this person like yes i hear you yes and yes and you're wrong it is important and yeah <laughs> like, like we need people of color in that ensemble full stop you know i i also i mean listen it's not not the same show but like it's when people like when people are like oh elwoods need to be blonde like i didn't myself put in blonde dreads years ago like Black people wear blonde wigs. Black people wear blonde extent. Like black people have blonde hair. My I grew. My aunt had blonde. Like it just it doesn't. People backing up their their racism and their mm. white supremacy because it is written into the system. So like that's what I want. Like I want to say is like when Mary's like, oh, we can't do anything. I'm like, you can't do anything because that is literally what was written back in like 1919. So mm-hmm. then what y'all need to do is scour it and rewrite it but you don't want because that's called the work so you don't want to do the work no and the people you know what i will say about this group of people i appreciate the people on council Mm -hmm. i do because i mean they're i thought our job as delegates was difficult council is a whole different ball game that it, they're volunteers and people forget that, right? People think that they're out here getting paid to just like sit around on these zoom meetings all day, whatever, whatever. But I will say that by, I think, I think in total across the three regions, I think maybe there's 10 council, 10 council members of color out of like 80 something, I believe, don't quote me, but I think that there's 10 of them. And it's like, this is the problem. We've got people on council who don't understand membership at large, they understand membership to what it was. I mean, some of these people have been on council for years. Like it's not the same union that it was even five years ago. You know, it's not the same union that it was 12 years ago. And like when you have people who are so used to doing things a specific way, leading negotiations, you know, leading these big decisions that they just can't wrap their heads around. Like it is a disservice to the members, like, and we shouldn't have to get on here and like make resolutions about, um, racism and safety and get it passed in order for people to to stop being racist, to stop, doing these, saying these microaggressions, like all of these things, like we shouldn't have to be creating resolutions to address these things. It should just be 
don't be a racist, you know? It, I just, can I say, can I just pause and say, not being racist literally takes less energy than you out here trying to cover up your racism. 100. <laughs> like, I just, I, I really don't get why, I, I, it's not laughable, but to me at this point it's laughable that I'm literally having to watch, still in the year of 20 and 21 of our Lord, that's what I believe, <laughs> that we literally are on Zoom calls, Instagram lives, making demands to be equitable towards POCs. What mm-hmm. is, and, and then people, and for people to look at me and be like, I don't understand what uh, systematic racism is. You don't, because that's a system. That's why we're literally having to talk about it. Because nothing in this world was written for us right. to be, you know, safe. Yeah. As far as the world's concerned, we're still property. Yeah. And I mean, like, you know, that's step two of, of what I think is safe to go back. Like we need mandatory, mandatory DEI training and sexual harassment training. And like, it can't be like one, one hour workshop that is optional. It has to be an ongoing thing because like, just because you address it doesn't mean that people are just going to like, remember, oh yeah, like that's a microaggression. Like I probably shouldn't do that. It's, it's a constant learning process that people, companies, producers need to invest in. So like, and also like AA keeps saying, you know, there's this hotline, right? Like where you can call about and express your concern if you've been harassed, if you've been whatever, And I said on this call again to uh, it during the convention, I said, well, I think it would help if we knew who was on the other end of it. (laughs) I mean, because somebody was like, yeah, if you experience a microaggression at work, just call the hotline. And I said, "Okay, so like talk me through this, because like I experienced this thing. The thing was a microaggression. You know, I was working on a show and um, I went up to hair and makeup and I said, how would you like the hair for the African ensemble? It was a little princess, which is a, a gag of a, of a show. Um, lippas? Lippas? Yeah. <laughs> it was Lippas, a little princess. Um, and <laughs> the, the hair person, literally, I kid you not, there, there were multiple witnesses, looked at me totally serious and said, oh, honey, I don't specialize in ethnic hair. And I said, I took off my mic. I took it off. I gave it to my choreographer. And I said, I am not going back on that stage until this gets addressed right now. And in that moment, I was like, who do I call? Right? Like, this is a problem. Like, this person is getting paid, but also just like, kind of said this really horrible thing to me. And now I have to take, oh, it was a whole thing. So then I used that example at the convention and somebody was like, just call the hotline. And I was like, well, who's on the end of the hotline that is under that is going to understand why this was so problematic to say this to some, to a person of color. I'm not going to go and spill my heart out to like some random white person who's like taking notes and is like, okay, like we'll get back to you. And they were like, oh, well, I'm on, I'm, I'm on the other end of it. It comes directly to me. I'm a black woman. There's also this other woman that it goes to. And I'm like, okay, but what are the names of these people 
so that we know? And why are we not telling membership that? So that way people feel more comfortable calling the hotline, knowing that it's an actual person and not like some like recording system that like you may hear from somebody and you may not. And it's like stuff like this, the communication with membership is horrible. Like it needs an entire restructuring to make people feel like they are connected to their union and they haven't figured that part out yet. So can I also interject here Mm -hmm, and mm -hmm. say that like normally at a job, when things don't go correctly, so they've established a hotline, right? Hotline. Great. Mm -hmm. That's well and fine. Why have we not established HR for the union? (laughs) There is literally no human resources. Every job that is when you have to deal with something you go to human resources and that's how people get fired right <laughs> the reason why nobody's getting fired is we literally do not have hr if i right. if i can say that if i am in my understanding and i've been looking into it we don't have an hr mm-hmm. and there's like 20 million people that you could go to hoping that one of them has the answer so it's like if, when I was having a problem as DC on a show that I was doing, I'm like, do I go to the artistic director? Do I call the business rep? The business rep just told me to call this person. That person just told me to go to like the HR of the theater. That person told me to go back to the union and talk to the com- the, the committee chair of blank. And I'm like, oh my gosh, somebody just please answer this question for me. Why is this so difficult? And that's the reason, that's part of the reason why people don't speak up, why people feel like they have to sit with the discomfort of feeling unsafe because nothing is clear. Like there's, there's just, there's too many cooks in the kitchen and not like a clear, like a flow chart, if you will. We're visual learners. Give me a flow chart of like who I go to if I have blank problem. And like, there has to be more like not even transparency, but clarity on that because the union loves to say, just go to the portal, just do this. Just go on the portal. I'm tired of the damn portal girl. I'm tired. I'm tired of going to a portal. Tired because you think that it's going to be there and you have to click on 50 other pages when you just have one question that needs to be, you know, asked. But and also, so, does like, it not seem like they don't, want to answer the question then at that point they want you to get tired and be like okay well well fuck it i'm not i'm done i'm done looking that's what they want is what it seems if you're going to tell me to go to some portal right and i'm just like we can't do this anymore like we need a complete makeover like a true restructuring of the of the the communications department Because out of, I mean, there are a number of things that are problematic right now that we're still, you know, that have still been unaddressed, specifically the AEA convention. Um, But moving forward, like member, we're all screaming for more communication in a way that feels authentic, in a way that feels, I don't know, that comes with empathy, but it's also black and white for them that they just don't have the capacity of being real with us, you know, and just saying, we don't know if we don't have, if you, if they don't have the answer to your question, they are so afraid of saying, we don't know. They would rather tell you, you know, to go on the portal or to do this or to join a committee or blah, 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 as opposed to just being real and saying, we don't know, but we'll get back to it. We'll get back to it, but we don't know. 
I I feel so I and this is me outside looking. I'm not a delegate. I am just not just. I am a member of the Actors Equity, as is as is Sherry, um, and uh, as are you. And so I and and maybe this is just my black ass self being like <laughs> it seems so simple because like I like it always just seems so simple and they don't want to do it right. Like I, right. I just I don't. How hard is it? To make DEI training mandatory. How hard is it to uh, create an HR? Mm-hmm. How how hard is it to be like these let's address the actual issue? Because like every every actor that I can talk to can name you the issues that's wrong with AEA, except right. for the people running it, apparently. Right. Right, right. Yeah. I mean, that's a great question. And the answer is it's complicated. Why? Mm-hmm. Because of situations like this whole Avita thing where they say this is the language, but we can't force them to do anything because there's no accountability. In my mind, I said, well, if North Shore Music Theater is coming out here, like flat out saying, you know, it's not a priority for us to cast diverse. They, he's literally on record. They said it. He is on record saying that. So in my mind, I, I, when I talked to Mary, I said, can't you just pull their equity contracts? Like, can't you just like allow them to like not have equity members in their productions, which yes, is taking the the work away from folks. But at the same time, especially in the case of North Shore, white people, they have to step aside. Like that's, it is what it is. And Mary was like, no, I wish it were that easy, but because it's not written into the contract, the Lord committee has to renegotiate that contract. Then it gets sent to a board of all white men. Then the white old white men have to either sign off or blah, blah, blah on it. Then it goes to somewhere else. So there are multiple steps that come with these decisions that we as members don't know about and that I didn't even know about being a delegate of the union until I asked the question. I'm like, just don't give them any more contracts. And she's like, I wish it were that easy. But it's not because it's so layered and it's so there's always for every one kind of, you know, possible solution. There's like a hundred action steps that and it's part of the work. But when it comes to legal stuff, they can't because like legally they can't insert themselves in places, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So it is. Unfortunately, this is number three of what it looks like to be in a safe works workplace. It's up to the members to educate themselves. And one of my biggest things when I ran to be delegate was member education, mm-hmm. even if it means that I'm talking to like a hundred people on my on my Instagram of like, did you know that you do not have to sign a contract? In that, because on lately, I feel like I've been given contracts the day of the first rehearsal. Yes, and I have to sign it and give it back to them. And Mary was like, "No, you don't. You absolutely don't have to do that. You can take a contract home, look it over, talk about it with whomever you need to talk about, and then bring it back to the theater and said, you know what? I've read through it. These are the things that I agree with. These are the things that I don't agree with.' And I said to the 100 people following me, I was like, "You can do that." I also asked Mary, I said, in regards to accountability, since clearly it needs to be the members who are holding these people accountable, I said, do I have the ability legally to ask if there are people of color, both in the cast and on creative, 
or if I'm the only one. Because if I'm the only one, you are hiring somebody to take care of my mental state while I deal with all you white people. Like, point blank. Now, listen, come on. I said, is that legal for me to ask them if there are other people of color, both on creative and in the cast? She said, absolutely. And I said, great. I will be (laughs) shouting that from the rooftops. I told Every, every AA member that follows me, this is how white people show up when you sign that contract. Cause it's not going to be us going back to work anytime no, soon. No. Cause what's coming back right now? Mama Mia, Mama Mia, Mama Mia, Greece, like all of these shows that like historically do not include people like us. Those are what's coming back because it, the summer's coming. Everyone wants something fun to do. And I said, For this is people. how you show up. For white people. I said, this is how you show up. When you get that contract, you go through it. You ask producers, whomever, general management, whatever, if there are people of color. Because if not, you don't do the show. Period. That's me. That is what I expect of everybody else. Because that's what needs to happen. You know, we need to educate ourselves because right now where the union is, they are not capable of giving us the information that we need to safely go back to work beyond COVID, beyond, you know, knowing that a company has a brand new HVAC system, beyond knowing that this company wants everybody to be fully vaccinated. No, I want to know how I'm going to be protected as a woman of color yes. in a predominantly yes. white space. Yes. And I want to know that if you are not going to do the work to, you know, follow up on your black square or whatever you did during, you know, last summer, uh, yes. then I'm going to put you on blast because you are not someone that I want to work for, nor should anybody else want to work for somebody like that. What I love is in this pause that we're, we're in still in whatever is that we have gained the agency and the audacity. I will be audaciously black mm-hmm. and I will have my black ass agency as well to be like, who's who all these questions that you're asking us, right. Oh, that you're, that you're like this, the third point of making a place a safe space. Right. And seeing that, People, so like with this, like the March on Broadway and all these things that people are like, well, everybody's focused on Broadway. Why are we not focused on the regional houses? I was like, because the regional houses are going to take a lot more from a lot more people who are really less willing than Broadway is. I get it. I honestly get why we're focused on Broadway and national tours. Because where are we going when we go to Alabama and Texas? Do those those people want to change? Have they changed in 400 years of living? Right. And I think about that too, you know, as someone who works primarily in um, the regions, as we call it in, right. in AA world, um, you know, I primarily work in New England because I want to, because I am so invested in a tight knit theater community that has a lot of work to do, 100. But at the same time, there are like bits and pieces of glimmer and hope that I see. Like I am so obsessed with places like Trinity Rep in Providence. They are moving mountains in comparison to places that are in downtown Boston. And like, I see places like Trinity literally doing the work and that makes me hopeful. But at the same time, Trinity has an acting company of like 20 something actors 
And it was the BIPOC actors that stepped up and said, we need change. We need change because like there's no reason for for a place, especially in Providence, like it it is such a a beautiful, beautiful community of people of all shapes, sizes, colors, etc. There is no reason why we are not supported in the way that we should be. Um, because we have the resources to, you know, they're a bigger house. So like, I think of that and I'm just like, that is the hope that I crave, right. That like gives me the fuel for fire. But at the same time, like, there's also a part of me that's just like, oh, like these places out here in like Western mass, like, you know, like, you know, in New Hampshire. Oh my God. I did dream girls with a group of people in New Hampshire right out of college. And that was, that was wild. That where, was, where can I swear? Mate, can I swear? The company? Yeah. Interlakes summer theater. Oh, Oh, I, I, I remember that I auditioned for that one. I did not book that, but I was in Mount Washington Valley and did <laughs> men of La Mancha and was Mitch in spelling me. Baby, when I tell you, I was the only black person in the company and I had to play the Moors, plural. Oh, sure, 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 sure. And I was like, I'm only, this is a more. I'm a more. I'm one. I'm one more. I'm one more. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's stuff like that, that it was like, and of course, you know, Dream Girls was the, the second show. They did Ain't Misbehaving right before. Of course. But it was the second show. It's a black season. It's a black season. Then the third, the third show was Les Miserables and all the black people left. Like, I'm like, wait, wait, where are all the brown people? It was like me and like two other people. And then a whole bunch of white people were like, we're here for the summer, like summer stock. We love it. And I'm like, Whoa, what a culture shift to start with Ain't Misbehaving and Dream Girls to then go to like Les Miserables. It was just, it was, it was wild. It was truly in Meredith, New Hampshire, of all places. Like there were no brown people anywhere in sight. <laughs> it, it, yeah. I, but, and it also, I tell people don't realize this. Um, and, and this is just my experience. Every, I, Everything that that is a show mm. for me on my resume right now, and I've in it's like ten years in the making, has something to do with me being black. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like yeah. The, like in grad school, I was a more like I said, and and then I was Mitch, who was normally black, the comfort counselor. And yeah. then when I graduated, I did a mini tour of Smokey Joe's. Mm, okay, yeah. And then from there, it was just like black, 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 black you know. And I I don't. I don't mind that, but when we're out here being loud about being POCs and our experience and what, what does most of our resumes look like? And then we're in these spaces doing these black shows and nobody's talking about the dramaturgy of it all. Right. Yeah. Or how to be safe or, or when you do a show that literally we do that, we teach us in Motown. When you do hairspray, you don't really, you literally are creating segregation. Mm-hmm. You will literally have the white cast on rehearsal one day and the black cast on rehearsal one day. If yeah. you don't bring the company together and be like, we know that like tensions, like you to build a real show and the truth out of the real show, you got to talk about segregation. Yeah, for sure. And not just create segregation and then hope that we're mentally okay to prepare to deal with it. Right. Right. Yeah. And like, I don't know. I just feel like I'm so over, which is something that I'm like really passionate about moving forward. I'm so over like stories of color being told by like all white creative teams. 
I think about this beautiful, beautiful production that I did of a show at the Huntington a couple of years ago. Mm. Michael McElroy was my music director. But Michael McElroy was the only person of color on the creative team with a cast of entirely brown and black Latinx folks. Like, I think maybe we had like two or three like white folks in our cast, but like, it was just Michael McElroy. And like, the show was so beautiful and it was an incredible experience. But at the same time, the tension, the tension between creative and leadership and how we received all of that, even if it wasn't directed to us, you know, everyone was walking on eggshells all the time. People were crying. Like, you know, we had to get like, um, we had to get uh, art- our artistic associate producer, whatever, um, them involved and just be like, this is not, this is not okay. Like people are really struggling through this. Like, how do we make this better? And I think because the director had a big name, like they just kind of brushed everything under the rug, but it really did make a difference. Like you could just feel the discomfort, you could feel the pain of people just being like, I cannot make a mistake. If I make a mistake, this is the end of my career. And it's stuff like that, that I'm just like, why? Like at that point, when you're the Huntington, why was it not a priority to get more? Because they have the resources. A lot of these smaller companies are saying, well, we just don't have the money to pay for you know, a black choreographer, like a, a black director, because we have to find these people because they're definitely not in New England. Um, so we don't have the resources. And it's like, when you're the Huntington, like, why aren't you doing that? Because you do have the resources. And mm. there's there's never an answer. There's never an answer to the question, you know? It, and that's... Isn't that the most frustrating thing is when when mm-hmm. you... We do these things, right? Like, I'm, I'm, on, I'm on this podcast network talking through this with you and, and Cherry and um, our, our dear friend Patrick, who is, who is helping us with sound. And, um, uh, shout out to Patty. Um, um, but like, it, it is, it's not rocket science. Like, mm-hmm. I always want to be like, it, y'all, it is really not hard to figure out how to be equitable. Mm-hmm. And we sit here and like we, and not that we're talking in circles because I think that everything that we're talking about needs to be talked about but at what point do we stop talking and and people who have the power and have mm-hmm. the control are going to get are going to be like okay well listen now we're actually going to change things it yeah. shouldn't take a whole coup of people of color delegates being like okay now we're on the council now we're going to ruffle feathers at this three-day right. convention right and like it's been people of color kind of you know, leading, leading the work, which is unfortunate because we're already dealing with so much, but it was like, I got on Facebook and I was like in um, the theater folks of color group. And someone was like, Oh, can anyone uh, share the, the document where all of the BIPOC directors, choreographers, like where all the creatives are listed across the country. And that was started by someone of color, just like, you know, my, my fellow delegate Wumi, who is, unbelievable she created a resolution called black equity in hair and makeup and it was a black woman who had to create a resolution on how she did the work for these people who are getting paid they are getting paid she is not she created this resolution that breaks down 
you know, everything from like, you have to have both. And I said this because I've been, you know, I've Mm -hmm. asked for black bobby pins and people are like, well, we only have blonde. And I'm like, well, uh, well, okay. So you really didn't want to hire me. Right. And then she was, so she broke it down to like, these are the things that we need. These are the different types of hair. These are textures. This is what you can do. This is what you shouldn't say. Like she did the work for them. And it's like stuff like this that I'm just like, yet again, it's people of color doing the heavy lifting and never getting like any sort of, not that it's about this, but never getting any sort of like, whoa, thank you. Like we needed this. You did this. You did the work. Let's go. Like it's never people of color getting the thanks, if you will. It's always like, okay, great. You know, like, cool. Thanks. You know, and this problem's been happening for years and like without name dropping the biggest show for POCs is has the biggest problems with wigs and mm-hmm. not hiring dark skinned people. Mm-hmm. It's a whole, it's a whole looking back. Like I wish that I had like an ounce of, of knowledge that I do now when I first joined the union, not that I, I think that it would have ch- truly changed anything But I think even knowing just like the tiniest things of like, I remember my first equity contract, I signed a writer. It's an understudy writer because Mm -hmm. there are no understudies in New England. They don't hire understudies full stop unless I've only been an understudy. I've only had an understudy at Trinity and the Huntington. But like these smaller SBTs, these neat theater, these neat contracts, there is no understudy. And I remember signing the writer and thinking like, Oh, this feels like such a strange thing that I have to like sign off on. And then I started seeing people dropping like flies because we get sick, we get injured, we get blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, shit, like that could have been a moment where I'm like, could we just talk about this as someone who, this is my first equity contract. What did I sign? Because everyone is dropping like flies and we need people like, and it's stuff that kind of education is not on the portal. Like it's not, I, I, as a member could not have logged in and known that I was like, cause you can't see the contract. I mean, you can see the rule book, but you can't, can't see, see what it actually looks like, you know, negotiating for more money, especially if I'm doing double or triple the work that my white colleagues are, you know, like these are things that you can ask for, but we don't because we are grateful. We're grateful for the opportunity and we don't want to be seen as problematic. Well, and, and uh, in my humble opinion, I, um, oh yeah, sorry, I got you. I, 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 oh, yeah. I will, I will say like the understudy thing, like ha- having just done that and got, I got brought on, like there were rules against it. It was, it was at Playwrights Horizon. They could only do it at like so many days up to like, opening day like there's so many rules about that but like we're also in a whole a whole ass panera bread mm-hmm. <laughs> like how are we not gonna have understudies right when we're in a pandemic like y'all got right. to change these rules because mm-hmm. it, it's the same way when when uh smoky joe's cafe once again our dealy got sick shimmy girl got, she got sick and i was clearly in the quartet and we had to do those six numbers back to back. I remember everybody was laying on the ground and I, I was, I was Victor. So I had to do, I have I was like, I don't know if I'm able to sing this today just because mm-hmm. we literally had to do all six of the quartet numbers back to back to back to back. Cause somebody called out and there was no understudy. Wow. 
as like wow. second, second, third show I've ever done in my life. But like, mm-hmm. of course, what do you do? Right. Carla, this has literally been such an amazing talk. Um, I'm going to wrap it off. I would love for us to spitball. So for people of color specifically, what does care and mental health, what, what would be, what would you, how would you tell people to take care of themselves that are going back into the world as it's opening up in theater specifically? This is a great question. Um, I think with everything going on, I mean, and in my personal life, like I'm a huge advocate for this. Like I I think having some sort of um, team that you can lean on, whether, I mean, personally, it's a therapist for me, um, whether it's a family member, a group of people, like a partner, you know, somebody in your corner who like fundamentally understands what you need, even when sometimes you don't or you can't because of everything going on. Um, I think that's huge. Um, And also just recognizing that, I mean, it's, it's no, it's no coincidence that like, you know, Cuomo made this announcement that Broadway is coming back. I say Broadway in air quotes because I mean, it really should be theater, but whatever, whatever, that's a whole another conversation. Um, so we're going to get people who are frantically probably casting for whatever's coming up. So you're going to see an influx in self tapes. You're going to see an influx in auditions. You're going to have people asking you, you know, what are you comfortable with? If there is an opportunity to go in, in person, like I want people really thinking about what safety means for them. Um, And I think that that will ultimately affect their mental health because there are some days where I'm like, you know what? Like I could do a tape. And there are other days when I'm like, you know what? I should not do this tape because if I do this tape, that's going to take my, my one to two hours that I could be sitting, reading a book that I could be sitting, planning my wedding. There could be, you know, other things. <laughs> there could be other things that I could be doing with this time. That's going to help me reset. And, um, just hoping that people really think about what safety means to them, both physically and like, uh, emotionally, mentally, because that's going to f- fundamentally change you know, how we move forward um, as a community and as individuals, you know? I, uh, I, I, I agree with all of that. Um, I, I would also love to say from me, um, in, a, in addition to what everything that you just beautifully, took, beautifully put, is that when you book the job and you get in the space, as hard as it is, don't be afraid to ask for what you need Mm-hmm. Or highlight when you do not feel safe. Right. Um, I, I myself just just I landed I just landed a big gig, mm-hmm. um, and it I I'm not the only person of color on the creative team, but I'm like one of two. Okay. Uh, <laughs> and like you know, got added because there was a short list, and I made this short list, and and yeah. I worked hard to like be on these short lists and things like that. But like, if I roll up into a room and I don't feel safe, I'm going to go to somebody and be like, this is not safe for me. Yeah. I need some, I need to speak to somebody and I should be able to do that. And I think everybody should be able to do that without the fear of getting blacklisted. Being Mm -hmm. blacklisted needs to be an archaic term that we don't use ever again. Yes. Being safe needs to be number one. Mm -hmm. Equitable equals safety. 
That's that's what I think it, it, for everyone across the board, behind the table, in front of the table, blah 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 blah. So I think that I would challenge I literally I would challenge everyone to if if there is something that you need to feel supported, mm-hmm. ask for that. Yeah. And and also listen, I know that people have to pay the bills, but also don't be afraid to walk away from a gig. I think that as scary yeah. as that is, dealing with decades of mental health and trauma as we see our elders doing because mm-hmm. of the oh well that's just the way things are no it didn't have to be that way right and we are demanding it that it's not that way walk away yeah for sure because it will definitely make more of an impact where you're like well yeah i'm i walked away from that gig because it was not safe for me right and and everybody's gonna everybody's level of safety is going to be different i think right. grace grace for yourself grace for oh, others yeah. I, I I saw somewhere and I and I I've taken this um, so I can't credit who I got it from, <laughs> but I keep saying that I'm practicing radical grace oh, for myself and for others mm-hmm. because we all make mistakes. And I also say you don't know what you don't know, mm-hmm. and there's so much that people running this shit and this ship don't know. Yeah, yep. that we might actually right. So, I mean, I guess that's, you know, that's, that's sort of final, final words on that. Um, Carla, it has been such a joy. Thank (laughs) you so much for coming and sharing. Um, Where can we find you on Instagram? Um, My handle is underscore C-M-D-E-N-I-C-O-L-A. So it's underscore C-M-D Nicola. Um, Shoot me a little friend request and you can hear my ramblings about my (laughs) cute wife or my (laughs) delicious little cats. Or, you know, if you're... If your taste is AA information, there's some of that there too. So baby, it's listen to Purple <laughs> We got we got a buffet, okay? <laughs> um, and once again, I am Elijah Caldwell. You can find me at This Is Caldwell Official on Instagram, and of course, you can find us on Rock the Audition at Rock the Audition. We share your baby. I would love to thank the Broadway Podcast Network for having us. This has been such a delicious morning. Y'all, my week's about to be great. This is how I started. This is my Monday. This is the first thing I did today. All right? Um, Y'all, listen. Take care of each other. Keep washing your hands. Keep being safe. Keep yourself safe. Keep your mental health safe. Keep being physically safe. We love you, and we'll talk to you soon. All right? (laughs) Thanks, y'all. Bye, (laughs) y'all. Bye, everybody. Bye. everybody. It's Sherry Sanders. Thanks for listening to this episode of Cause and Effect. Cause and Effect is part of the Broadway Podcast Network, produced by Dory Berenstein and Alan Seals, edited by Kyle Moore, and music by Courtney Bassett and Andrew Swackhammer of Starbird and the Phoenix. Special thanks to Stephen Farazee. Thank you. And if you like what you hear, Don't forget to subscribe and rate this podcast wherever you stream. You should also follow me on Instagram (laughs) at rocktheaudition. And to learn more, visit bpn.fm backslash cause and effect. Peace.
Hey, it's Leslie Odom Jr. here on the Broadway Podcast Network to tell you about the RISE Theatre Directory, a program of maestro music. RISE is a national online resource designed to connect and empower backstage and administrative and creative theatre professionals from underrepresented backgrounds. If you work or aspire to work in the theater community, this can help you find your next project. And if you hire theater professionals, search the RISE Theater Directory to find your next team. Create your profile now and get more information by visiting risetheater.org. That's theater with an R-E-R-I-S-E-T-H-E-A-T-R-E.org because only together we rise. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm gonna make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you wanna get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of The Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play The Godfather now at ChompaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply.